Hello and welcome back to Rock Fans Podcast. I'm Jonathan Maliberti. Uh, I'm so excited for this episode, Rolling Stones Part 8. Uh, it's really one of the most fascinating periods in rock and roll history, in my opinion. Um, it's very important for understanding the Rolling Stones and their development as a rock and roll band. It's really, in my opinion, the crucial turning point for them um, in turning into a 70s rock and roll band. Uh, it's also a hugely important chapter uh, in the story of Brian Jones. Brian is a crucial player in the making of their 1967 album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request. And this album is pretty much universally, you know, derided as one of the worst albums in rock and roll history, just a total disaster. Um, and I definitely sympathize with, you know, a lot of those views, and I understand exactly what critics and listeners uh, think when they hear this album. But personally, I actually kind of like this album. Um, it's kind of a time capsule record. I feel like I'm traveling back in time when I listen to it. You know, I don't I don't feel like that kind of record could really be made today. Um, so I'm really excited uh, to share with you guys Rolling Stones Part 8. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please follow us uh, at Rock Bands Podcast on Instagram and share Rock Bands with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, without further ado, I bring you Rolling Stones Part 8. In March of 1967, the Rolling Stones were about to embark on a tour of Europe. It was a horrible time for the band to go on tour. Mick and Keith were still in the eye of the hurricane after the Redlands drug bust, a situation that wouldn't resolve itself until the summertime. The band dynamic was also terribly frayed, and an awkward tension overtook the group stemming from the Keith, Anita, and Brian love triangle. Since Morocco, things really hadn't been good for Brian Jones. After an abusive meltdown in Tangier, his girlfriend, Anita Pallenberg, finally left him. Unfortunately for Brian, she left him for his best friend and bandmate, Keith Richards, who, along with Mick Jagger and the rest of the entourage, left Morocco without telling Brian, leaving him humiliated, alone, and confused in North Africa. Immediately after this incident, Brian didn't know that Keith and Anita had gotten together. He had his suspicions, however, all he knew was that Anita had left him in Morocco, and Keith, Mick, and the rest of the gang went with her. By this point, it had dawned on him that he had royally screwed up, but in his stoned condition, he thought that he'd get her back, and Anita would once again forgive him for his violent antics. Brian was wrong. Brian flew from Morocco to Paris to London, where he arrived just a few days before Anita. Thinking all he had to do was see her at the airport to repair his relationship, Brian arranged to meet her to patch things up, but he was shocked by what he found. Anita was, in fact, dating Keith, but even worse, she seemed to be very serious about it all, and she was no longer interested in Brian. This came as a pretty big shock to Brian, and led to a fair amount of denial on his part. In the following months, Brian tried countless times to get Anita back. He'd corner her in hotel lobbies on tour, parties, recording sessions, to no avail, but he never quite gave up hope. He was obviously crushed, and losing Anita, coupled with his bandmate's betrayal, led to a worsening of Brian Jones's mental state until his departure from the band two years later. This decline was made far worse by his simultaneous loss of status in the Rolling Stones. Keith had always written the songs, but he was sort of an afterthought. 
He had no stage presence, and he looked pretty plain compared to Mick and Brian. Drugs changed that, though. As Keith got more into the world of drugs in 1960s culture, he began to adopt this new image, you know, the image of a badass, a pirate. He dressed in all these striking ways, his hair got longer and made him look sort of menacing. Keith took on a dark persona that, until 1967, had really been Brian's image. Combined with the high-profile drug bust that plastered Keith all over the papers, the Rolling Stones were now just as much Keith Richards as they were Mick Jagger, while Brian Jones slowly faded into the background. Brian never really brought the Anita drama to the band, however. He never confronted Keith, nor did he try to get the other bandmates on his side against Keith. Rather, Brian sort of accepted the situation for what it was, a major humiliation. Bill Wyman said, quote, There followed a period when Brian could not bring himself to speak to Keith. Such was the aura of trouble around us all at this time that the Brian-Keith coldness became strangely official, unquote. All of a sudden, Brian became quiet, reserved, and out of it. Where Brian used to have the reputation of being a tough guy, now he couldn't even find it in himself to look at Keith in the eye. And his old commitment to fun, pranks, and jokes pretty much disappeared. He began to medicate himself really heavily with the use of quaaludes, also called mandrax. Quaaludes are intended to be a heavy-duty sleeping pill, but if you don't fall asleep, it produces an intense high, one of sedation and delirium. Brian began to abuse quaaludes in 1967, which pretty much changed everything for him. His use of quaaludes mixed with all the other bad habits that he was controlled by turned him into kind of a zombie. But that wasn't it. Brian's fortunes continued to get worse. I mean, the press obviously had a field day when they found out about the girlfriend swap that happened in Morocco, but even worse for the Stones, in May of 1967, the day that Mick and Keith's drug trial began, the police raided Brian Jones's house. They found pills, weed, and cocaine, putting a third stone at risk for a prison sentence. Brian was released on bail shortly after, but the drug charge was serious business. Cocaine was a much bigger deal even back then, and he would spend the next six months of his life in and out of courtrooms, eliminating any hope for a Stone's U.S. tour in the near future. But even worse, the drug bust was another blow to Brian's mental state. He became extremely paranoid, which caused him to become even more isolated from the band. Like I said, though, there was never much drama over Anita after Morocco. Brian seemed to have largely accepted the new order. He did try to get Keith back when he began dating Keith's only serious ex-girlfriend, Linda Keith, uh, the inspiration for Ruby Tuesday. Brian and Linda Keith started dating on and off throughout the rest of the 1960s, though it didn't really seem to make a difference in Brian's battle to get Anita back. But this was the state of the band dynamic when they embarked on their 1967 tour of Europe. They were paranoid about their drug charges, and Brian was becoming more isolated than he ever had been. Musically, I think the Stones were in a weird place as well. Uh, Bill and Charlie were still making sure that the heartbeat of the Stones were alive, though they were evolving as musicians and their playing had become a little more experimental, a little more trippy since the early days. Mick Jagger had kind of lost his cool anti-show business casualness that had really characterized his image for so long now. Now he would perform 
in like extravagant psychedelic clothing, you know, long light blue gowns, hats, and all this kind of crazy stuff. Not quite the style that he would be known for later in the 70s, but it was definitely flashy, trippy, these pieces that most blues singers wouldn't be caught dead with, quite frankly, but it was the time and it was probably cool back then. Keith's playing changed too. His guitar playing became a little meatier and his style was a little more confident and robust. I mean, this is because he became the band's sole guitarist, more or less, over the past couple albums. Brian was down but not out yet. He realized that his increasing role as a multi-instrumentalist had kind of downgraded him as a guitarist, so he actually took guitar lessons in London to sharpen his skills for the tour, but since the Stones had now become known as a band with a bunch of exotic Baroque flavors to their music, Brian had to play a lot of weird instruments that uh, he played on the record live in concert, like on Painted Black, Lady Jane, Ruby Tuesday, Let's Spend the Night Together. These were all songs where Brian had to play an instrument other than guitar on stage. The tour began in Sweden on March 24, 1967, and immediately the atmosphere was different. Custom agents all over Europe were desperate to bust the Stones. Upon arrival in Sweden, the Stones had all 17 pieces of their luggage, as well as their bodies, searched, uh, keeping the Stones held up at the airport for hours. In France, a few days later, a physical altercation broke out between Keith and a border guard asking for their passports, and pretty much everywhere they went, there was some additional inconvenience or suspicion that prevented them from just moving through the airport easily. Now, the next leg of their 1967 tour was not in Western Europe. It was in Eastern Europe, which was not nearly the same culturally or politically. In Poland, a communist dictatorships, fans were beaten by the police if they were considered to be acting rowdy. So the band kind of was playing to an audience that was scared to cheer and to dance. Back at the hotels, they began to realize that things just were a little off. All these people kept walking near them, and soon they realized that they were actually being followed by plainclothes police officers everywhere they went. The next Warsaw shows triggered sizable protests, which left the Stones confused. They quickly found out that all the tickets had been sold to Communist Party officials, and virtually no real Polish Stones fans had the opportunity to buy tickets. That infuriated them. They thought it was unfair and wrong. Trouble followed the Stones all across Europe. Riots in Switzerland, more police in Germany, a rowdy crowd in the Netherlands. The band couldn't catch a break. The tour ended in Greece, and after a few weeks of anxiety, the Rolling Stones happily went their separate ways. The drama wasn't over for Bill Wyman, though, as he and his girlfriend Astrid Lundstrom and producer Glyn Johns decided to stay a few days in Greece after the tour, landing them in the middle of a military coup d'etat. Bill Wyman remembers the first moments of the coup, saying, quote, Our idol was shattered two days later by the sound of gunfire coming from across the bay in Athens. I called the Greek promoter's office to be told that troops had occupied government buildings. I was warned that a 6 p.m. curfew had been imposed for tonight and that under no circumstances should we leave the beach house after that time. All contact with the outside world had been cut and we had to wait until the situation was resolved and try to continue to enjoy the short holiday until the airport was reopened for commercial flights." Unquote. This was a bloody moment in Greek history, and Bill and the rest of his entourage are lucky that they made it out unscathed. 
As you can imagine, the European tour was sort of the final straw for the band. I mean, touring had become a huge bummer. They were searched at every turn, and now they had to play to dictators and in the middle of military coups. Mick Jagger was so fed up with touring that he famously declared after the European tour that the Stones would, quote, never tour America again, unquote. When asked about the Stones' future plans to tour Europe, he said that they just toured Europe and that there was no need to tour them again, and that everybody who wanted to see the Stones had already seen them. He kept dodging and pretty much saying that the Stones had no future plans to tour at all. This wasn't an official announcement, but the writing was on the wall. Touring was hard. The Stones would play for a half an hour to fans that were screaming so loud the band couldn't hear themselves play. Then the show would either end in fans rushing the stage, a riot, or the Stones barely getting out of the theater into their cars safely. Now they had to deal with drug searches and visa problems, and to them, touring really wasn't worth it anymore. The Beatles had unofficially stopped touring after a couple of disastrous 1966 tours, and the Stones, feeling similar pressures, decided to do the same after the 1967 European tour. The next time the Stones hit the road in 1969, they would be a completely different band, musically, and they would be playing rock and roll to a different world. The 1967 tour of Europe was sort of the end of an era in Stone's history. It marked the final moments of that British invasion enthusiasm that followed them around the world since 1964, a scene that they had kind of been outgrowing for a year or two. The tour would also be the last Rolling Stones tour to feature Brian Jones, something that neither Mick, Keith, nor Brian knew at the time. In the spring and summer of 1967, the Stones waited to see if their future would be destroyed. Mick and Keith awaited their trials while Brian waited for his. Bill and Charlie kept a low profile, hoping that this wasn't the end of the band. As we discussed in Rolling Stones Part 7, Mick and Keith were let off the hook thanks to a very high-profile movement in the press uh, and among the youth to support the Stones. Fans waited outside the courthouse, recording studios, etc. to express their support for the Rolling Stones, and there was a hardly a moment when police and parents weren't being made aware of the youth's displeasure about the whole situation. In the music world, support for the Stones was at its highest. Artists like John Lennon and Donovan, Eric Burden, communicated their anger in the papers and in interviews. The Who actually went as far as to release covers of Rolling Stones songs like Under My Thumb and The Last Time so they could keep their music alive while the band couldn't make any more. Mick and Keith's release and eventual exoneration in July of 1967 was a huge relief for music fans and the Stones themselves, but the whole period from the European tour to the trial was just a huge stressful distraction, and not a lot of music was being made. The Stones got back to work in June of 1967 and recorded their single, We Love You, to thank their fans for sticking with them through the trial. The song is sort of a forgotten one in the Stones catalog. We Love You was a minor hit in the British charts and it was pretty much ignored in the United States. Despite the poor chart showing, I always thought of We Love You as kind of being one of the most unique Stone songs. The piano riff played by Nicky Hopkins is really strong, and Brian Jones plays a dazzling Mellotron part. The song's nonsensical lyrics are a mixture of thanks to the fans as well as a targeted victory lap around the establishment with whom they were furious. Jagger sings, we don't care if you hound we and lock the doors around we, you will never win we, your uniforms don't fit, we love you. 
The song also has pretty awesome sound effects. The Stones added the sounds of prison bars slamming and guard dogs barking. But the band received a lot of flack for We Love You. People said that it was a ripoff of the Beatles' All You Need Is Love. And the vocals on the song were too similar to the style of the Beatles. However, John Lennon and Paul McCartney actually sing backing vocals on this track, which explains why the song sounds so beatle because the Beatles actually sing on it. The B-side to We Love You is another unusual move for the Stones, a jolly little song called Dandelion, which John and Paul also sing on, giving the song a distinctly unstonesy sound. Dandelion is another song that was made special by Brian Jones. Thanks to his saxophone solo at the end of the track, kind of proves that Brian was still very much uh, involved in the making of Rolling Stones music in 1967. Both We Love You and Dandelion are fun songs, but it's not the Stones' best moment. The lyrics are too trippy to the point of sounding silly, and musically both songs, especially Dandelion, are kind of busy sounding and indulgent. Neither single was really that well received, and as far as Stones songs, these two are pretty much forgotten in their catalog. Which is saying something, because pretty much every single the Stones put out from 1965 to the mid-70s was memorable in one way or another. In retrospect, the fact that both singles failed to reach the top spot or make much of a splash should have been a bad omen for the Stones, who were not self-aware enough to correct their course. They would spend the next six months working on their infamous 1967 album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request, an album that is so detested that it was pretty much wiped away from the Rolling Stones catalog and caused them to reevaluate their entire musical direction just a year later. Sessions for their Satanic Majesty's request started in earnest in December of 1966 and continued in a very haphazard fashion for the next year. For the first half of 1967, the Stones were just barely scraping by, putting together tracks, adding overdubs, but coming up with very little in terms of an album, thanks to court dates, drama, and touring. Around this time, Brian Jones found time to travel to Libya, Spain, and finally California to witness the Monterey Pop Festival, where he introduced his friend Jimi Hendrix to a California audience. And Mick and Keith were also jetting all over the world with their new girlfriends, thinking very little about the album that they needed to get done. By the summertime, it became obvious to the band that they needed to get to work. They released Between the Buttons the previous January, and at the rate they were working, they weren't going to be able to release an album in time for the Christmas market, meaning the band was at risk for going a whole year without an album, pretty much unheard of in those days. One solution to this was to put out a compilation album, which they did for the American market, an album called Flowers. Flowers included some singles and songs from Between the Buttons and Aftermath, as well as three unreleased songs, Sitting on a Fence, My Girl, and Ride on Baby, all three of these songs were written and recorded in 1965. A compilation album wasn't enough, though. The band had to actually release an album full of new materials and get somewhat serious about recording their next album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request. From the start, it was a mess, because the Rolling Stones had overthrown the hierarchy that had been keeping them in check. They no longer had a boss telling them what time to show up and what could and couldn't be included on the record. By 1967, Andrew Lug Oldham, the Stones' manager and producer, 
really wasn't capable of being a boss anymore. He was really abusing drugs and alcohol, and he got really caught up in that 67 culture and lifestyle. But he had also given much of the business responsibilities to Alan Klein, and his role as creative leader of the Stones really wasn't fitting anymore. At first, he was the mastermind behind their image, but the Stones had changed a lot since 1963, and they didn't really need help with public relations anymore or uh, how to dress or how to act. So his role shifted uh, to more of their spokesperson and producer. But Mick and Keith had become so good at writing music and the rest of the band became so comfortable in the studio that Andrew's role in the control room was also diminishing. Andrew Luke Oldham wanted the production to sound like the music of Phil Spector and the Beach Boys. They had their own ideas of what they wanted their albums to sound like, and it certainly wasn't like Pet Sounds or The Ronettes. What's more, Andrew Luke Oldham didn't do himself any favors during the big drug bust. Instead of staying with the band, he fled to L.A. and made himself scarce for much of the spring and summer. And when he was there, his dependence on speed was becoming more and more noticeable. In pretty much every way, Andrew Luke Oldham was starting to clash with the band. But the recording sessions for Satanic Majesties was also a mess because of acid. The Stones had been taking too much acid, and it really made their music suffer. They would play, think it sounded great, and listen back the next day and realize they had to start everything over. They had no rules. Any instrument had potential, and every lyric might be a possibility. That summer, a lot of time was spent in the studio, but little was getting done. Instead of playing during the day, the band started working around 7 p.m., and they would work until the early hours the next morning. But as the summer progressed, people started showing up whenever they wanted. Bill and Charlie would be there at 7, but then Mick wouldn't show up till 10, and Keith and Brian maybe didn't show up at all. When Mick, Brian, and Keith did show up, they usually had a bunch of people with them, and the recording session would turn into a party. And sure, every once in a while, uh, they would do an overdub or lay down a backing track, but most of the time spent in the studio that summer was wasted. After just a few weeks, Andrew Lug Oldham had had it. He just gave up. He no longer had control over the band, so he decided to quit altogether. Oldham remembers the moment, saying, quote, Nobody noticed. Nobody said goodbye. I got into the rolls, and Eddie drove me away into the night. We stopped. Suddenly I had it, and I got out of the car to make a call. What was I doing? It was as clear as day. I finally felt that I did not belong and was not wanted, unquote. Andrew called Mick and told him his decision ending an important era in Stone's history with just a phone call. The sessions for Satanic Majesty seemed to be evidence of a band about to break up. Bill Wyman said, quote, The events of the previous three months would have split any other group. The girl swapping, the management problems, the police harassment, the court cases, the disintegration of Brian, the division between those who smoked and those who didn't. If we were ever going to wrap it all up, that was the heavy period when it could have happened, unquote. Bill went on and described the dysfunction of the Satanic Majesty's session. Quote, Every day at the studio, it was a lottery as to who would turn up and what, if any positive contribution, they would make when they did. Keith would arrive with anywhere up to ten people, Brian with another half dozen, and it was the same for Mick. They were assorted girlfriends and friends. I hated it. Then again, so did Andrew Lou Goldham, and he just gave up on it. There were times when I wished I could have done too, unquote. 
Despite all of this, the Stones were still recording an album, and one they must have thought was pretty good. They were experimenting endlessly and trying to make the album sound so exotic and different uh, that it was unlike any other popular music that they had heard at the time. When asked about the album's direction by a music journalist, Jagger said, quote, It really began with the Beatles' Revolver album. It was the beginning of an appeal to the intellect. Once, you could tell how a group was doing by the reaction to their sex appeal. But the days of hysteria are fading, and for that reason there will never be a new Stones or new Beatles. We are moving after minds, and so are most of the new groups." Unquote. The two strongest tracks on the album are She's a Rainbow and 2000 Light Years From Home, uh, and they're actually pretty solid songs. Uh, they're definitely innovative, psychedelic music. On She's a Rainbow, future Led Zeppelin bassist John Paul Jones adds a wonderful string arrangement, and Nicky Hopkins plays that really iconic piano part. On 2000 Light Years From Home, which was written by Mick when he was in prison for the night, Keith plays a really haunting electric guitar riff while Brian matches that dark mood with his Mellotron part. The album is shocking because most of its contents are songs that even pretty big Stones fans have probably never heard of. I mean, who listening to this podcast knows songs like On With The Show, Citadel, Gromper, The Lantern, 2000 Man, Sing This All Together. That's the whole album. A lot of unmemorable, kind of meandering songs that, for the most part, never left an impact and were certainly never played live after they were released. This is sort of unfortunate for Brian Jones, who was far and away the most important contributor to this album, musically. This was a confusing period for Brian. I mean, he really was out of it. His hair was disheveled, his eyes were bloodshot and glossy, and he was usually under the influence of a cocktail of drugs, LSD, Mandrax, and booze. Yet somehow, he was never as productive as he was on Satanic Majesties. His main obsession was the Mellotron, a weird little keyboard thing which he played on pretty much every song. But his contributions went much, much further. He painted every song with several exotic instruments. Brian Jones played like 20 different instruments on Satanic Majesties. Instruments like guitar, recorder, mellotron, theremin, dulcimer, harp, saxophone, vibraphone, organ, and so many more. It's not that Brian Jones just played these instruments either. In a lot of cases, he really helped carry the song. Glyn Johns, who was helping the Stones produce the album after the departure of Andrew Luke Oldham, said of Brian's playing, quote, Brian's incredible. Did you hear that harp on the last track, On With The Show? He played that. Just picked it up in the studio. He came in last night. There was a little child's plastic ukulele lying around. It's almost impossible to get a tune out of those things, but he did. He seems to be able to play anything he picks up, from saxophone to dulcimer, unquote. But Brian's playing was also the album's biggest weakness. I mean, it was impressive that he could uh, play pretty much anything he picked up, as a lot of people say, but his use of these exotic instruments was excessive, and it brought the band so far away from blues, pop, and rock and roll, and into the world of heady psychedelia that a lot of the songs became almost unlistenable. On the eight-minute disaster, Sing This All Together, See What Happens, Brian clutters the already aimless jam with crazy sounds, while Keith's dissonant guitar solo, which is random and indulgent in its own way, is kind of the only thing that brings the song back to reality. 
bassist Bill Wyman actually wrote his first song for the Rolling Stones on Satanic Majesties, a song called In Another Land. Originally titled Acid in the Grass, the song was written by Bill that summer on the organ. It has sort of a trippy, psychedelic atmosphere to it, but he was pretty suspicious of psychedelics, so the lyrics are kind of a parody of what was around him at the time. Bill wasn't ever going to show it to the band, but one day he arrived at the studio on time, as he always did, and ended up waiting with Glyn Johns, Charlie, and Nicky Hopkins. It soon became clear that Mick, Keith, and Brian weren't ever going to show up, so they decided to leave. Before they left, though, Glyn Johns asked Bill if he had anything he wanted to work on, and as it happened, he actually did. Bill said, quote, We were thinking of leaving when Glyn said to me, Do you have a song to do? I sat at the piano and played In Another Land, and they liked it. Unquote. The song is actually pretty strong, especially for it being Bill's first song with the band. Um, the next day, uh, Mick and Keith came in and they listened to the song, and they approved it to go on the album. Mick added some backup vocals on the chorus, and Keith overdubbed some guitar while Brian played Mellotron. In Another Land was the first and one of the only original Stone songs not to be written by Mick and Keith, and it was released as a single where it peaked around 60. The sessions continued in much of the same fashion until the fall, when they had something like a final cut. The band traveled to New York to do the album art, where they did the cover, uh, a picture of them in some far-out space set with the band wearing this kind of ridiculous, funny clothing. The cover is also 3D and has this really intricate 3D border, which was really expensive to make. Keith said of the cover, quote, That was acid, too. We made that set ourselves. We went to New York, put ourselves in the hands of this Japanese bloke with the only camera in the world that could do 3D. Bits of paint and saws, bits of styrofoam. We need some plants. Okay, we'll go down to the flower district, unquote. The album was finally released on December 8, 1967, almost a full year after Between the Buttons. Anticipation for their Satanic Majesty's request was extremely high, and critics and fans were more or less let down. Unfortunately for the band, their Satanic Majesty's request came out at a pretty bad time. The Beatles had just come out with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and the difference in quality is astounding. Sgt. Pepper was a cohesive masterpiece that spent a good part of a year topping the charts, and it spawned timeless singles like Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, as well as the art rock anthem A Day in the Life. The production on Sgt. Pepper was miles ahead of any other record at the time, and the songwriting demonstrated the Beatles at their peak. It was a smash hit, and even the best Rolling Stones album would have had a hard time competing. It didn't help that the album they put out was not only seen as worse than Sgt. Pepper, but it was mocked as a cheap ripoff of the album and a musical disgrace. Critics called the album indulgent, condescending, and embarrassing. Even the band distanced themselves from the album in later years. Keith later said, quote, Satanic Majesties was a load of crap, unquote. Mick said, quote, It's not very good. It had interesting things in it, but I don't think any of the songs are very good. There's two good songs on it. The rest of them are nonsense, unquote. The album was a critical turning point in Rolling Stone's history, though. The smackdown of the album by critics was a real shocker to the band because they had nobody to blame but themselves. Their producer literally quit, 
so they did almost all the production themselves. The failure of the album taught them the hard way that they couldn't just put out anything and have it be praised. Quality mattered, especially if they were supposed to keep up with John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Satanic Majesties was also the end of the line for the style they had been working on since Aftermath. No longer were they interested in adding a whole bunch of exotic instruments to their music. What was cool and innovative a few years prior was now derivative and boring. 1967 was the year the Stones veered completely from their musical roots, and the results were not very good. 1968 would be the year the Rolling Stones rediscovered themselves musically and stylistically, and became the rock and roll band that they were always meant to be. Sadly, that would be a band that Brian Jones simply could not keep up with anymore. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Uh, next episode, we're talking about 1968. We're going to be talking about the Stones' Beggar's Banquet album, Rock and Roll Circus, and so much more. So don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, until next time, check out their Satanic Majesty's request and uh, let me know what you think. Is it as bad as critics say or is it a low-key bop? We'll see.